Now there's in this chapter a reminder that it's addressed to the Lord's holy people. And that reminder is found at the boundary of, in a sense, the two sections at the centre of the passage, the stuff that probably made very little sense to us who wear all kinds of clothes with all kinds of mixtures, for example. You shall not sow your vineyard with two kinds of seed, lest the whole yield be forfeited. You shall not plough with an ox, and you shall not wear cloth of wool and linen. You shall make for yourselves tassels on the four corners of the garment. You see, Israel had been introduced to the categories of clean and unclean back in Leviticus in relation to animals they could eat and other aspects of their life. And they were controlling categories in their life. And they were to maintain those distinctions as the Lord's holy people between clean and unclean. And that need to maintain distinct categories and not intermingle what is distinct was to actually reach into every part of their lives, into their agricultural practices and what they wore. And they'd already been taught this in Leviticus 19. You shall, that was 40 years ago. You shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed. You shall, nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. So as they're about to enter the promised land, this instruction is being repeated here with further specification. Wool and linen specifically are not to be intermingled and as they were in the priestly garments. And an ox, a clean animal, was not to be yoked with a donkey, an unclean animal. And what's the point of this reminder? It's telling them that they're to live in the land of promise that they're about to enter as the Lord's holy people. And that that Holiness, that separation of the law was to find visible daily expression. And the tassels on their garments introduced in Numbers 15 were also to remind them that they were the Lord's people who were to live by his commands and be his holy people. So Numbers 15, Moses had said, uh, verse 18, Tell the Lord had said to Moses, tell them to make tassels on the corner of their garments throughout their generations and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. It shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes which you're inclined to whore after. So you shall remember and do all my commands and be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God. So the tassels on their garments were a memory aid and their holiness, their separation to God from all the surrounding nations was to be seen in their obedience to his commands. Now this need to maintain distinctiveness by not confusing what is distinct also underlies the instruction of verse 5. A woman shall not wear a man's garment nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. Women are not to wear men's garments or men women's. Now we could debate how this should be expressed in today's fashions, though there can be a degree of arbitrariness, as I'm sure you're aware, in deciding what is women's and men's clothing. And as one commentator has observed, in all the discussion, it doesn't matter how conservative the commentator is, no one's ever condemned the wearing of kilts. Right. right. Uh, uh, but the point, of course, we are Presbyterian. Right, the point is that there is to be no deliberate confusion, no deliberate crossing over 
the boundaries between men and women. You see, truthfulness, men and women being seen to be men and women, facilitates relationships that are based on reality and not on deceit. And society needs that clarity in relationships. And your children need that clarity as they grow up. So you shouldn't dress boys as girls and girls as boys. And as this is a more fundamental distinction that's involved in nearly all our social interactions and therefore foundational for society, and as there is some evidence that some forms of pagan worship involve transvestitism, that is men dressing as women and vice versa, transgressing this command is more severely condemned. It's an abomination to the Lord. Now, this need to maintain distinctiveness in appearance, by the way, is also endorsed in the New Testament's instruction in 1 Corinthians 11 about how men and women are to participate in congregational life. Maintaining the distinction between men and women, not confusion or the obliteration of real differences, helps. It helps us relate to each other and it honours the God who made us male and female. Now, these rules about what they sowed, what they wore, how they used their livestock were a reminder to Israel that their relationship to the Lord, where he had separated them to be himself so they lived different lives from their neighbours who didn't know the Lord, is a reminder to them that their separation to the Lord was to find visible expression in daily life. It was to be seen. But it wasn't just to be seen in the distinction between clean and unclean, holy and common. Embedding these laws in the middle of chapter 22 was saying that their consciousness that they are the Lord's holy people was to be seen in all areas of life, in how they treated their neighbour and in how they conducted themselves in the intimate relationship that's at the core of family life, the relationship between a man and his wife. And it's actually a reminder to us that our holiness is to be seen in all of life, how we treat our neighbours and how we ourselves behave in the most intimate of relationships. Now, Deuteronomy 22 tells us that holy people are to be and meant to be good neighbours. Now, we've already looked at this with the children, but holy people are people who protect and preserve their neighbours' property. You see, it's not enough just to do the negative, not steal, not covet. You actually have to actively help your neighbour to retain what is theirs, what the Lord has given them. And holiness is also to be seen in the love that preserves the life-sustaining fruitfulness of our neighbour's environment. If you come across a bird's nest in any tree or on the ground with young ones or eggs and the mother sitting on the young or the eggs, you shall not take the mother with the young. You shall let the mother go, but the young you may take for yourself, that it may go well with you and that you may live long. Now, there is both, in a sense, a sensibility and a utility in this command. See, in relation to sacrificial animals, Israel had already been forbidden to kill a mother and her young on the same day. And so there was to be respect for the parental relationship, a respect for the relationship that gives life even where we're dependent on the death of others to live. 
But this command also prioritises the long-term long -term sustainability over short-term gain. If the mother lives, there can be continuing production of offspring. If the mother is taken, then the eggs and the young ones will die as well. This respect and rejection of greed was tied to the enjoyment of continuing fruitfulness, that it may go well with you, not just for the individual, but for the whole people of Israel. And we should think, where a society licences short-term gain that's based on taking away not just the fruit, but the source of fruitfulness, it suffers because it destroys the very basis of its continuing sustainability. We are good neighbours where we steward the productive resources of a country so that they can continue to sustain life. And that stewarding is to happen individually in our own decisions about what we'll take and use for ourselves and collectively. Now, making wise collective decisions in an interconnected ecology is much more complex and it depends on knowledge. And so, I'm not going to go into it here, but the principle is clear, isn't it? Good neighbours steward the resources of our environment to sustain fruitfulness. And holy people are good neighbours by making sure that nothing they own endangers the life of their neighbour. When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. In Palestine, people's flat roofs were the original outdoor room. Uh, they'd use it to dry crops, store material, sleep there on hot summer months. And so the householder had to make sure that people couldn't accidentally step off or roll off their roof. To not take steps to prevent a foreseeable hazard would be to bring blood guilt upon the householder to make them guilty of negligent manslaughter. So think through what you own. What steps have you taken to ensure that it doesn't harm those who may use it? Is your car serviced? your electrical appliances safe, your pet controlled. When people work for you or on your place, you insist on adequate safety, even when it will cost you a little more money or time. Now, holy people should take the lead in this and so do it willingly and not reluctantly. And I guess that, now I read this, I think about it, you have to change sometimes. I don't know about you, I sometimes grumble about OHS requirements and the time they take. Well, that's probably sinful. I should probably repent. We ought to do the things that preserve people's lives and anticipate danger and prevent it. So holy people, I don't know how you've thought about holiness, but here we see God's word says holy people should be good neighbours, whether it's in looking after our neighbours' property, their environment or their lives. Now, why? Well, think of our holy God. He loves. Our Lord Jesus says he is kind, loving to the ungrateful and the wicked. He's a merciful God. And so he wants his people to show a thoughtful kindness in relating to all. He wants them to be like him, the holy God. Oh, and think of how we become the holy people of our holy God. It's because Jesus didn't ignore our interests. He put them before his own. 
humbling himself, putting himself out to die on the cross for our sins. As John says, we know love because we've been loved by Christ. Being the recipients of a love that's paid such a cost, well, we should love, shouldn't we? Even when it puts us out. Or maybe especially where it puts us out. Now, there's probably uh, enough to think about there, actually. But the chapter goes on because God's word is rich and tells us that being the people of the holy God also includes having a distinctive sexual ethic where we accept responsibility to keep sexual activity only for the relationship of a husband and wife in marriage and to ensure that the weaker, the more vulnerable part in that relationship is protected. And those are the principles that we'll actually see embodied in the cases that follow that you heard read in verses 13 to 30. Now some may find or may have found those verses difficult to hear. Uh, Perhaps that's because it seems so far removed from the sexual ethic of our society or because of the apparent expectation that the hated woman of verses 13 to 19 should stay with the man who slandered her or the expectation, verses 28 to 29, that the girl who's not betrothed should marry her assailant. Now, that's a bit shocking, isn't it? But I hope at the end you'll see that in this society, those are prescriptions designed to provide protection for the woman, not to disempower or oppress her. But for the others, the whole question of what to do with sexual violence in a society is actually too difficult to consider because of your own personal experience. If that's the case, well, I am grieved that your life has been marred by that sin. God's word, as we'll see, has no sympathy for the perpetrators of sexual violence. And if what I say today stirs up things you want to talk about, I'm happy to listen or to arrange for you to talk with one of the older women in the congregation. Now, to understand the cases presented in verse 13 following, and especially the remedies that are applied, there are four things it's helpful to know before we look at each one of them. Firstly, we need to know the place of the family in Israelite life. The family was the fundamental unit of Israelite society. It was the place of instruction in the covenant, the context in which the blessing of being in the covenant was experienced through possession of the land, the family's inheritance. And it was (coughs) the means of transmission of membership of the covenant, of relationship with the living God. The family mediated that covenant relationship from one generation to the next and so ensured Israel continued as the people of God. And so the authority, stability and prosperity of the family was of central importance to the well-being and the continuity of Israel as the Lord's people and also central to his purpose for them to be a people who showed that the Lord alone was God and that life, the blessed life, was found in knowing and worshipping him, not idols. So the family is central. Secondly, we need to understand the vulnerability of women in ancient agricultural societies like Israel, societies which are very different from ours. Uh, Now, George Athos, in his commentary, describes the situation of women in the ancient world in this way. 
There was no public education or widespread literacy, no housing options, employment opportunities or social security, no police, charities, clubs or other social infrastructure that might allow women in the ancient world to live independently. This is why women and children were particularly vulnerable in the ancient world. They depended on being attached to a family unit headed by a man who could physically protect and provide for them. For a woman, this began with the household of her father. When she was of age to bear children, she would join the household of her husband to become firmly established within the family line by providing it with children. If she outlived her husband, she would hopefully join the household of one of her sons. Unlike today, therefore, Bearing children was not merely a matter of personal choice for a woman, it was vital for her livelihood in a relatively undeveloped society. Now we may be grateful that that is not our society, but it was their reality. And the context in which the law, this law, seeks to provide for and protect women. The third introductory point is that sexual sin is never considered a purely private matter, as it is in our society. From the outset, the prohibition of adultery has been one of the foundational ten words, the Ten Commandments. Adultery was both and is destructive of family and social stability, and it is completely alien to the Lord's character. For adultery is making a commitment and then breaking it something that the Lord our God never does. He always keeps his word. So being committed to being faithful in marriage, both man and woman, was an aspect of Israel's relationship with the Lord their king. Israel's distinctive sexual ethic was part of their commitment to being the Lord's people. So, for example, the penalty for adultery was not left to the husband as it was in the society surrounding Israel. It's actually given by the Lord and administered by the judges, not the husband, to purge evil, it said, from Israel, to maintain Israel as the people amongst whom the holy God could dwell. And fourthly, we have to recognise that what we have in these verses is not an exhaustive body of prescriptive law. What we actually have are pertinent, illustrative cases Examples of how to deal with sexual sin which are to be read in the light of the rest of the law and they give principles that Israel could then apply to similar but perhaps more or less extreme situations. They give guidance for judges. Now they're connected as you'll see in the outline moving from the accusation of immorality before marriage to adultery in verse 22 the analogous case of the betrothed woman verses 23-24, to dealing with a case of sexual violence that may be re appear to be related to the previous case of adultery but which is actually very distinct, verses 25-27, to 27. then a similar case but relating to a girl who's not betrothed. And finally, the only piece of prescriptive law, verse 30, addressing interest, incest. Now the first set of cases in verses 13 to 21 has to do with a situation where a husband accuses his new wife of unfaithfulness prior to marriage. 
Now, virginity is an issue in that society because if the woman's not a virgin, there could be doubts about who was the father of the child and therefore who was entitled to the family inheritance. Promiscuity before marriage threatened, therefore, to destabilise families, to disrupt inheritance and to erode trust by people getting married under false pretences. It was serious. But while there is a clear expectation seen in verses 20 to 21 that women be virgins when they marry for the first time, reinforcing the consistent position of God's word in both the New Testament and the Old Testament, that sex for both men and women is only to be practised in marriage between a man and a woman, the way this case is presented suggests that here the main concern is protecting a new wife whose husband is seeking callously to get rid of her by making a false accusation. You'll notice that the accusation originates in his hatred of her. It's a strong word, hatred. And the cause of that hatred is not specified. Now, what this law says is that the husband's suspicion is not enough. There must be facts. And in this case, the charge can be refuted by the father producing what's called the evidence of her virginity, presumably a sheet or garment uh, with bloodstains that originated at the time of consummation. Now, this all seems quite foreign to us, but that is a practice known over history in a number of cultures. Now, this text doesn't say that this is the only admissible evidence, but it is an example of a wider principle that accusations need proof. The weaker are to be protected from the accusations of the more powerful by demanding proof. Equally so, uh, its lack, this uh, lack of uh, this cloth is not sufficient to establish a charge. For the law has already said back in chapter 17 and 19 that capital require, crimes require the evidence of two to three witnesses. So you have to bear that in mind. What the two cases establish is that those marrying for the first time should be virgins, that accusations must be sustained by evidence and that false accusations are serious as seen from the penalty imposed by the elders. Uh, they to whip him and fine him and uh, then he has to uh, marry her. What, while, now, while the two cases... Uh, as, as, yeah, but the law has said, right, and we saw this back in chapter 19, uh, that when someone makes a false accusation, the false accuser should receive the punishment he tried to afflict on the one he was accusing. We've already seen that. Now, the punishment for the young woman would be death if the charge was proven. So why is the accuser only whipped and fined twice the normal, normal amount given to a bride's father? And why is it thought satisfactory that a wife should continue with someone who hates her, who can now never divorce her? Now, that same question will be felt even more acutely when we come to verses 28 to 29, where the woman becomes the wife of her assailant. Well, this requirement is definitely not seeking to punish the woman. It's actually seeking to provide for her long-term security. There was no alternate source of economic security 
than belonging to a household. Now she is to belong permanently to her husband's household who must provide for her for life. And with that provision comes the possibility of children and longer-term security, which she wouldn't have if she just returned to her father's house. Now the alternative, executing her husband, would leave this woman in the vulnerable position of a widow, without, in a sense, the means of production, of economic sustainability, and probably with a cloud over her reputation, even though she had been vindicated. So this is a provision that actually, in a sense, makes him pay a fine for the rest of his life in sustaining her. Now, the next two cases deal with adultery. Adultery is condemned in the Ten Commandments, and like the surrounding culture, as I've said, where the punishment was left to the husband, and unlike our society where adultery is seen as shameful but often excused as understandable, a purely private matter between a husband and wife attracting no legal penalty, adultery is seen as a crime against the Lord, a repudiation of his rule. Adultery was a betrayal, not just of the other spouse, but of the Lord, the Lord who entrusted transmission of the covenant to parents, whom he had commanded to be honoured, a covenant where faithfulness was fundamental. And so adultery was actually a betrayal of the Lord. And it attracts the death penalty where proven. And that penalty is applied equally to the man and the woman for the relationship is consensual. And then in verses 23 to 24, the penalty for adultery is extended consensual sex between a man and a betrothed woman. And this example is given for while the betrothal was a public commitment, legally binding on both parties and so different in a sense from our engagement, she was not yet living under her husband's roof, nor had the marriage been celebrated. So this example clarifies that the legal status of the betrothed woman is that of wife. And what's being considered here in verses 23 to 24 is consensual sex between a betrothed woman and a man who is not her betrothed husband. And there is consensual, there is no mention of force. Now crying for help, screaming in its absence is actually just used as a sign of consent or lack of consent. There may be other ways of establishing that the sex was not consensual and circumstances where a woman, even in the city, could not cry for help. This is not exhaustive, but it is establishing the principle that consensual sex between a man and a betrothed woman is to be reckoned as adultery and attracts the penalty for adultery. And this is in distinction from the next case. If in the open country a man meets a young woman who's betrothed and the man seizes her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the young woman. She has committed no offence punishable by death. <coughs> For this case is like that of a man attacking and murdering his neighbour because he met her in the open country and though the betrothed young woman cried for help, there was no one to rescue her. Here there is no consent and the young woman is the victim of sexual violence. The man seizes her. This is rape. And there is a presumption of innocence given to the young woman. And she's not blamed in any way 
for what happened. So it's not suggested, for example, that she was wearing the wrong clothes or where, walking where she should not have been or anything like that. All the blame, all the punishment is borne by the man. In fact, this case is cited because even though it, it has some common features with what goes before, this is a betrothed woman and sex outside marriage, this case is cited to tell us that the analogy is not with laws concerning adultery, but with laws relating to murder. This is seen as violence, cruel violence. And the assumption is that, hard as it may be, traumatised as she is, this young woman will continue as she is betrothed. Sexual violence should not rob her of her place in her society or of her future, an expectation that places a responsibility on the betrothed to nurture and provide. Now, her betrothed state is the significant difference from the next case, which is also a case of sexual violence. If a man meets a virgin who's not betrothed and seizes her and lies with her and they are found, then the man who lay with her shall give to the father of the young woman fifty shekels of silver and she shall be his wife because he is violated that he may not divorce her all his days. Now we are shocked here, aren't we, that the assailant, rather than being executed, is allowed to live and take the young woman as his wife. Three comments. Firstly, location is not specified and secondly, the term for seize is different from the term used in the previous case, in verse 25, and it's capable of a much wider range of physical interactions. Now, both those features actually suggest that the interest is not, in a sense, in the details, the circumstances, but in the fact that they are found on the publicly changed circumstances of the young woman, that she's now, now known now to be no longer a virgin. And this leads to the third comment. In this case, the penalty is changed to provide for the young woman who is not betrothed and may now in that society never become someone's wife. To make sure that economic destitution is not added to sexual assault, the man must pay the father the bridal gift and take her for his wife and never divorce her. This is to ensure her future and the man has, in a sense, to make economic compensation for her for the rest of his life in perpetuity. Now, while we, with the options for support and economic independence, may think this is unsatisfactory, and we should be grateful for those options, the focus is on the woman and providing for her as best as possible in that society for the duration of her life. And finally, we have a man prohibited from taking his father's wife. It's not talking about his mother, but his stepmother or father's concubine. That's seen as a sin against the father in usurping the father's place and creating relationship confusion within the family across generations. But let's summarise what we learn about how a holy people are to conduct themselves in relation to sex. It tells us that even though in the narrative of the Old Testament we have men behaving badly like David with Bathsheba or Amnon with Tamar, there is no licence for male sexual immorality in the law of God. The sexual relationship for both men and women 
is expected to be expressed only in marriage, in the context of a committed family relationship. Consensual sexual relationships outside marriage are condemned and both men and women are held accountable. Male sexual violence is never condoned or excused but equated with murder. And male selfishness that seeks to use the law to be rid of a hated wife is exposed and restrained. Both sexual immorality and sexual violence are condemned and by that condemnation restrained in Israel. You see, what the law seeks to protect is the future and well-being of the less physically and economically powerful of the abused woman. In so doing, what it is promoting is male self-control and the idea that with power and privilege comes the responsibility of looking after and promoting the well-being of those who are less powerful. So holy people live sexually self-controlled lives and they don't use their power or privilege to exploit the weak. And this is even more true for believers in Jesus. The New Testament in many places, and I've listed them in the handout, not in that handout, in the transcript, endorses the teaching of the Old Testament that sexual activity is to find expression only in the married relationship of a man to a woman. All sex outside the marriage of a man and a woman is condemned and condemned by our Lord as well as in the letters of the New Testament as sexual immorality. In fact, as we heard, God's grace trains and teaches us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. You see, in our Lord Jesus, we don't have someone who used his power and authority to promote his own interests and pleasure, do we? Rather, we have one who denied himself to do his Father's will, who sought the interests of others above his own, though he was greater than all. He served. And he's faithful to his bride, his church, and sacrifices himself for her well-being. And so our Lord Jesus is exactly the opposite of someone who selfishly exploits his power and privilege to obtain sexual advantage, of someone who is driven by desire to be unfaithful to his relationships, unfaithful to his relationship with his heavenly Father. And the Lord Jesus expects his people to be like him. Holy people honour the marriages of others, and they promote the welfare of others and their society by making sure sex finds its place in a secure, committed, lifelong relationship of marriage between a man and a woman. But we read in Titus that it's grace that teaches us to embrace this self-controlled life. And so every one of us comes to our holy calling as those who have been forgiven. Just as there may be amongst us some who have been wronged by the desire and violence of others and who I hope are finding healing and comfort and hope in the love of their faithful Saviour who gave himself to cleanse his people and join them to himself forever so they are always secure. So there may be some amongst us who are conscious as they have listened to Deuteronomy that they have wronged others 
and that their sin is their sin is guilty. And maybe they're conscious because they see that, that their sin shames and grieves them. If that is you, if you sit there and you're uncomfortable listening to this because you can think of the way you have used your power and privilege to take advantage of others, well, come and talk. There was forgiveness even for David, that adulterer who confessed his sin. Jesus is the saviour of sinners. There is forgiveness for you. So together, sinners and sinned against, and I think that's all of us in this area, knowing we've been redeemed, let us live as that people who wait for our blessed hope. Let's be the good neighbours God wants us to be, who live self-controlled, upright and godly lives, serving others in love to the glory of our Saviour. Amen. Let's pray.